May I just say, Director General, Your Excellency, uh, distinguished guests, I'm honoured to be here today to address so many distinguished delegates, and I do want to thank the International Labour Organisation, the Department of Business, Enterprise and Innovation, as well as the National University of Ireland, Galway, for organising what is a very important reflection on the centenary uh, of the ILO, and indeed for, for also in reflecting on the very, very important document that is the Philadelphia Declaration. I am delighted to be meeting again many friends, including the Director General Guy Ryder, who is in attendance with us today. It's always a pleasure to meet. And also, of course, I think which we are all enhanced by the presence of Nobel laureate Kailash Satyarthi, whom I'm delighted will be giving the Edward Field Biennial Lecture today. Kailash Satyarthi has made a profound contribution towards the ending of child labour, as well as providing powerful advocacy for the rights of children and young people uh, to education. His presence, his work, his life, has been to me a, a testament of the importance of life itself that is important. And I want to say too that much of what I have to say this morning is building on maybe on some of the remarks I did indeed make in Geneva, but also it is influenced by the fact that my own training is as a sociologist. I often think uh, uh, that work, that I think that has been to think that we are in the presence of somebody who organised a global march of 80,000 kilometres, drawing attention to the fact that really children eliminating the worst forms of child labour was so important and really had such an important role in the adoption of ILO Convention 182, which is incredibly important. That convention is now ratified by 186 of the 187 ILO member states. But you will forgive me if I say in a way, should we have had, and should indeed he have had to walk 80,000 kilometers to ratify, to draw attention to such an important convention, to draw attention to the protection of children. But today's event celebrates then not only the ILO's centenary year too, but is a, a significant year for Ireland itself because Ireland it's, represents Ireland's first ever term as titular member of the ILO's governing body, which means that it has had a speaking and, and a voting seat on the ILO's governing body for the first time uh, since Ireland joined the organisation in 1923. And it is incredibly important because it coincides with an ambitious and active period in the ILO as it celebrates its centenary. And I think that Ireland is in a unique position then to shape and influence the ILO's policy agenda and to highlight, if you like, uh, the issues that Ireland feels should be to the fore in the centenary discussions. I remember, and indeed I'm so pleased that you have had such a distinguished person to give the, the Edward Phelan Lecture. Ireland's strong links include, of course, the key role that Edward Phelan played 
in the organization's establishment. And a, a secretary of the labor section of the British delegation to the peace conference in 1919, Edward Phelan took part in peace negotiations and the process of the founding of the ILO. He advocated for a permanent machinery for international labor regulation, and he is acknowledged correctly as the architect of the ILO's tripartite structure, which was an extraordinary achievement. And Phelan also was very, 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 very careful about the protection of the ILO. I am proud that the International Labor Organization was the first international organization that the fledgling Irish state joined in 1923. It may be appropriate too, in the presence of Story and Olivia here as well, to say that it's very important and maybe it's for another day, but we have not sufficiently acknowledged the role of the labour movement on this island, north and south, in its work against sectarianism and in particularly its response to the 1918 Anti-Conscription League and its regular attempts to intervene and try and end the great tragedy that was the Civil War. That is the atmosphere, and therefore it is of immense significance that the ILO is the organisation that the new state in 1923 joins. And then, of course, the ILO is one of the most important institutions in the conduct of international relations, one that gives voice not only to governments, but to the representatives of workers and employers, one that attempts a partnership. Now, it comes out of a contradiction in a way in relation to context too, because the ILO was born in the aftermath of that collision of empires, that catastrophic loss of life, the collapse of human consciousness that we now call the First World War. So the ILO was an institution that was created as part of the Treaty of Versailles, Central to its foundation statements was being the belief that social justice is essential to universal and lasting peace. And therefore you have those who work and represent workers in a way saying, if we are to remove the threat of war, we have to deal with the contributory factors. But their value-driven initiative as well, that can you think of how that was in such contrast it was the very antithesis to what was going on in the other rooms of the Versailles Conference, which was really about dividing up the spoils of the defeated empire among the victors. The challenge we now face as we mark the ILO centenary year, we now most regrettably, in terms of the public rhetoric of our times, live in a world that has, again in recent years, moved away sharply from a discourse that would be dominated by concepts of solidarity and empathy. And we have made a significant shift, the legacy of extreme individualism, market fundamentalism, and indeed we are at the end of a near half century of hostility to the role of the state. It is understandable that people would recoil from the abuses of extreme statism, but there are very severe social consequences in policy terms and in options in relation to the, to the very virulent hostility to the, role of the, uh, to, the, to the role of the state for more than four decades now. Our world communication, too, uh, which in the last 50 years 
has had such a distinguished contribution from public service broadcasting, has been fundamentally changed, and what was once the public space of discussion and disputation in public, the nation, as, as, as it had been Lord Reith once put it, a nation talking to itself, has been replaced by a kind of aggressive divisiveness that is often carrying the tone of a fueled, hate-filled rancor. And there is a vision of society emerging from certain parts of the world that is disturbingly reminiscent of that which laid the seeds of the rise of fascism in the 1930s. Such a context presents enormous challenges for those who believe in the transformative power of collectivity, solidarity, equality, social justice, and human decency. Think of the ILO founded in 1923, but think of what happened in the 1930s, and think of which tendencies prevailed. And the labour movement then, and I think in its partners in the ILO, are singular among movements in that they've always drawn the greatest strength from its collective ability, from the members and people willing to demonstrate solidarity in their workplace, and beyond the workplace towards their fellow citizens, and beyond national borders towards people all over the world. For when people had rights at work, they didn't confine it to the workplace, but you had public spaces with public music. You had a shared public life. There was a life in the piazza as well. And I think beyond, I think as well, national borders, the great tendencies towards internationalism towards people all over the world. The ILO then in turn with its principle of tripartism that the minister has mentioned has acted as a leading authority on how to improve, defend standards and conditions of work and to encourage decent work for all. But always in the context it was of creating an inclusive participatory citizenship within the different cultural forms of the world. The ILO is an achievement of states, and I think we must remember that the states who made it possible were willing to carry the responsibility of accountability to their citizens. But we are now living with new forms of corporate power and capital that are reluctant to assume such a responsibility, and indeed the more virulent members of whom would like to eschew any responsibility beyond that, as they would put it, the now the deepest debate as to whether your loyalty is to shareholder or stakeholder. In our present circumstances, a hundred years after those principal moments, which were for so many, I think the atmosphere in which an emancipatory constitution was first proclaimed, the ILO spirit of idealism and vital moral purpose, is, I suggest, now more urgently required than ever. I believe this moral purpose is seriously undermined in the context of an ongoing assault in so many locations, in so many countries, on workers' rights, of the hostility to regulation, the result of decades of pursuit, as I said, of a rather narrow, hegemonic, neoliberal agenda in so many parts of the West. And these tendencies are now succeeded at the level of society, with the rise of political extremism, especially that of the right. And this provokes the question, 
as to how the ILO is to rededicate itself to its founding mission and do so in new circumstances uh, with increasing authority and potency. How are we to define the nature of work, a source of access to the means of life and living, in a participatory citizenship, as I said, as a some kind of, or is it some kind of distributed consumer power for a marketplace? Or is it perhaps, perhaps still, for many, the space of life in which one can experience self-fulfillment? And this year's International Labour Conference adopted a centenary declaration for the future of work. It looked at the major challenges and opportunities for the future of work, charting the ILO's path forward as it was celebrating its centenary at a time of transformative change. And it correctly called for a human-centred approach for the future of work. I so support that. And in the centenary declaration, the fundamental principles of the Declaration of Philadelphia were reaffirmed. The declaration does indeed provide a platform for the ILO to intensify engagement and cooperation within the multilateral system. Another key outcome of the Centenary International Labour Conference was the adoption of a convention on ending violence and harassment in the world of work, violence and harassment. This is the first ever international instrument on this important topic. Hard to believe. It has taken so long, and yet all of this, however late, is positive and highly worthwhile. However, I believe that the founding message given expression in an achievable agenda of the ILO must be vigorously brought to the attention of the world by all of us who believe in equity and the dignity of work. Let us just think about how much better it would be if the necessary elements of different parts to what constituted social cohesion was forming the basis of the discourse that prevails in the streets of the world, rather than the abuse that is there in the rhetoric of those who are exploiting those who are objectively excluded in an economic and social sense, and yet others who confusion and fear perceive themselves as potentially excluded or potentially to be left abandoned, and thus altogether left to become the prey of xenophobes, homophobes, and racists. That is our context now. And in an attempt to offer positive contribution, I suggest that language is important and that all of the prevailing ruling concepts in our present economic discourse, flexibility, globalization, productivity, innovation, social protection, decent work, they are capable of being redefined if looked through a prism of social cohesion. And there is a difference between looking at them through that prism or through the prism of the iron cage of Weberian sociology. I think they can be given a moral resonance, and I'll go further. They can be made useful within the context of dealing with the interaction of three simultaneous crises with which we now deal in terms of ecology, economy, and society. And indeed, I would add, the binding force of ethics. And I think we are, and think which is very interesting to be, we are living through the failure, through the 
falling apart of the dominant paradigm, and we are witnessing the birth pangs of a new paradigm that will combine these areas of ecology, economy, society, and indeed ethics. And I'm thinking of the work that has been provided, for example, by people like Professor Ian Goff. What Professor Goff, in his work, Heat, Greed, and Human Need, speaks of and writes of is a new recovered political economy. And I do urge, insofar as I'm participating here this morning as, as a third-level institution, I do urge third-level institutions, including the National University of Ireland, which has jointly hosted today's event, to make space for this new interdisciplinary paradigm, which is the possibility of addressing these crises, to require it to be thought and to inform policy, including labour policy. For I think that a consideration of a new ecological social paradigm based on economic heterodoxy recognises the limits of the world's natural resources, as well as being capable of acknowledging the role that unrestrained greed, unaccountable, accelerated, often speculative growth, has played in creating the climate crisis. In that book, Heat, Greed and Human Need, Professor Goff made a superb contribution, in my view, and I would like to see it read right across the social sciences. He outlines how that alternative paradigm is rooted in the concept, I repeat, of human need over greed, moving away from insatiable consumption and accumulation, advocating gender equality, redistribution, and a reconfigured social consumption and investment strategy that, for example, transfers resources and technology from rich countries to developing countries as one of the key means of achieving this eco-social welfare state. And I think what's very interesting in that, as I was saying it as well, the consciousnesses that must be combined in political movements in a way cannot confine themselves to either the ecological sphere, the inequality sphere, or the social sphere. There is need for a merging of consciousness to achieve the fruits of the paradigm shift of which I speak. And there is a welcome recognition in recent empirical scholarship that the eco-social policies that underpin such an economic paradigm can simultaneously pursue equity social justice, sustainability sufficiency goals, and an activist innovation state with, if you like, transparent partnerships, substantial public investment, and greater regulation and social planning. The approach further offers, the, it outlines the socioeconomic measures that are required to offset any adverse or regressive impacts of the ecological transition for lower income groups, such as the unemployment resulting from the closure of legacy industries, and to reverse growing levels of inequality. Let us deal with that one. Inequality is deepening. And I will be speaking next week, when I speak at New York University, about the abuse of metrics and statistics in this regard. If you were to say we will measure, for example, extreme global poverty by $1.90, you will say we're winning the case against global poverty. So therefore, the model is fine. Well, whoever said $1.90, it would take 25 people to, in fact, living on the national wage in Britain to actually be the equivalent. There is well-funded foundation money pushing what is literally a complete dangerous fallacy 
If you look at the other measures, let us say move to $5.90, whatever like that, what you'll find is, in fact, yes, there have been, if we just say, the number of people under a dollar night has, in fact, declined. But what of those between a dollar ninety and five ninety? And what about all those suffering from malnutrition? What about all those with no education possibilities? And in all of those cases, in regards to the people, for example, the optimist movement, the actual figures are three times what they report in their well-funded publications. I'll deal with that on another day. <laughs> but I think that it is very interesting uh, to say that within the social sciences, if I have mentioned what is happening in social and ecological economics, in the social sciences generally, there is new exciting sociological research and theory coming from people like Professor Hartmut Rosa of the University of Jena in Leipzig. I think building on the concept, a wonderful concept, arguing for the need for society to move away from consuming the world to experiencing it and resonating with it. For quality of life, as he puts it, cannot be measured simply in terms of resources, opinions, and residual moments of happiness. Instead, we must consider our relationship to our resonance with the world. The world, and I think he's speaking of what you might call axes of resonance. What is our experience of the world through the senses, through all of our life? A quotation he puts it, from the act of breathing to the adoption of culturally distinct worldviews. All the great crises of modern society, ecological, democratic, psychological, can be understood and analysed in terms of resonance, our broken relationship to the world around us. And I believe this catastrophe of resonance, as Professor Rosa puts it, which we've witnessed in modern times, is related to the growing narcissism, aggressive individualism, and an emphasis on insatiable consumption and wealth accumulation, which I've mentioned, and which is such a far cry from the social justice, solidarity, and fairness principles that underpin the framework for the Sustainable Development Goals, and indeed the 1944 Declaration of Philadelphia, which you are revisiting today as a theme of your conference. We have now to engage with the neglected subject, as I've said, of ecology and its connection to economy, society, and ethics. The most pressing issue facing us all as a global community is that we're inhabitants of a planet that is in peril, owing to the insatiable unrestricted consumption of the Earth's finite natural resources since the onset of the Anthropocene, but accelerated so much in recent history. I am speaking, of course, of the climate crisis. But the bad thinking began such a long time ago. Think of Francis Bacon. I lead to you nature and her children for your use in bondage to gouge out her secrets. There is a fundamental philosophical support there for the ideas in turn that led people to be unable, to be mute, as philosophers would put it, in speaking with what was unfolding as a consequence of their action. So there now, I think, in a way, there is a great opportunity for the ILO to give leadership, and not in just concerned about looking at whatever jobs might be left or indeed allowed under the new system, but to play a progressive and robust role in the climate crisis 
pushing for fair, ambitious and binding globally agreed international agreements on greenhouse gas emission and reduction targets. And the ILO should consider playing its part, potentially one that could carry some weight in urging the United States of America to reconsider the profoundly myopic and regressive decision that it was to exit the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, a decision which could take effect from December 2020 and will effectively subject future generations to a bleak planet. And the ILO, too, can seize the opportunity to provide a lead role in developing a strategy for what I call the just transition for workers and communities to ensure that we are all part of a sustainable low-carbon economy and benefit from decent and green jobs. In Ireland, this will mean that those impacted by the closure of unsustainable carbon-intensive electricity production, for example, must be offered reskilling opportunities to enable them to find suitable jobs in other areas, such as the green economy, or upskilling opportunities that can achieve sustainable incomes in other parts of society. You could say that skills are undoubtedly the currency of this 21st century, but they will be need too for an enhanced focused set of measures of social protection, ensuring the loss of jobs does not lead to loss of citizenship in terms of participation. As to the task then, which I know is in your programme, of redefining work, we are now witnessing increases in precarious employment. And I have to say, sadly, right across the European Union, with which I'm familiar, in the university sector as well. Contract working and an ongoing casualization of labor that has been so well documented, indeed, by Guy Standing, Noam Chomsky, and other writers on the subject. And the new emerging trends in work practices, so-called innovations, are only innovations in a particular sense, to my mind, insofar as they maximize profits for employers and reduce employees' hard-won labor rights. I see such a trend, I think it is correctly called, part of an inexorable race to the bottom. And I believe that regulation, together with enforcement, is urgently required in order to protect those most vulnerable in society from being exploited as a result of the most adverse effects on these new paradigms of work. The good news about interdisciplinary work is that now geographers are working with economists, working with ecologists. And recently I was reading the new published work of Dr. Patrick Carmody of Trinity College Dublin in South Africa, who conducted some recent research which has shown how, in relation to two competing taxi companies, Uber and another, how ride-sharing and virtual capital have resulted in a hollowing out of the formal sector, a rise in the so-called precarious worker. And he writes, whereas many speak of the sharing economy, a more accurate way to describe it might be the on-demand economy, where firms divest themselves of their responsibilities to employees, reducing the structural power of labour. This represents an undermining of any social contract between the parties. That empirical work on South Africa, you get the car, you take responsibility for everything and you wait to be called, to be told, and when the company will in fact actually use you, your body, your car, your vulnerabilities for as it wishes. 
When one considers how an abuse of the trend towards digitalization is drawn on as well, I think, there's another example. We see how online workers often are not covered by employment law or collective agreements. Moreover, such workers seldom have access to social security, paid leave or paid training, owing to the fact that the platforms require workers to register as, quote, self-employed, self-contracting entities. Such practices, as we know, are also in place in other sectors, including the aviation industry. And these recent developments in the world of work are nothing less than a recrudescence of some of the worst practices of the 19th century. And the ILO surely has a very important role and deserves our support in discouraging and potentially outlawing such practices. The coordination and direction of employees by an algorithm owned and operated by a company should surely never be allowed to divest the employer of their responsibilities towards their employees any less than a spurious self-employment does. One of the great victories of the labour movement in the past was the regulation of piecework. Those old practices must not be allowed to re-emerge under the cloak of supposed innovation, flexibility. I believe it must remain an important objective of the ILO to reverse the systematic neglect and devaluation of workers' rights. The ongoing displacement of secure certain regular employment to achieve that for which the ILO and indeed trade unions were established by uncertain precarious jobs and characteristic chronic insecurity is a major cause for concern. And none of this produces healthy societies. Unequal economic and social structures create unhealthy societies with a huge public cost, a huge enormous personal cost. And many workers are expected to demonstrate what is often referred to as flexibility, by which is meant a willingness and ability to readily respond to changing circumstances and expectations, often without adequate information or recompense. Such flexibility is frequently not matched with any security of tenure or appropriate income by employers, with a vista of zero-hours contracts now an appalling reality for too many. Having said all of the above, one can recognise how important the responsible, responsive employer is and what an important role those employers who have placed themselves and their organisations within the ILO family are. I certainly recognise their anxiety with others for social cohesion and I salute them for that. And I believe that they are potential allies in certain redistributive campaigns. And I do invite them to be part of pushing forward the new paradigm. The setting we share is the contemporary version to, of globalisation. A globalisation that has had many impacts on our daily lives. Some will doubtedly have been positive, or at least not wholly negative. However, an uncritical, unethical globalisation pursued without consideration as to impact or social consequences, I assert, has contributed to climate change, more goods being produced and consumed, more transport of goods across longer distances, shorter product obsolescence cycles, and a more consumerist, materially driven society, all impacting adversely 
on finite natural resources and producing carbon emissions. There is a background to this too, which raises questions for all of us who've had the privilege of working as as in the third level sector. It is partially in the failure to have an adequate discourse on the impact of science, technology, and society. That discourse is at its best, and where it is barely tolerated on the fringes of academic curricula. It never got very far, really, in the university discourse, and yet the social responsibility of the impact of technology and of the contributions of science being used universally rather than individually never really got going. I feel globalization is a topic, is one which I found it necessary on bed to basic, on some of the speeches I've given, on basic moral and ethical grounds to return to so frequently during the first term of my presidency. How can we make globalization work for citizens? When I think, how, when what has been taken as its form, its presentation to date, has lacked, has lost legitimacy among so much of the citizenry. In other words, we're left still, and we have to engage with it, with the idea, the fundamental question, is an ethical, sustainable form of globalization possible? Where and in what for circumstances can, what forum, in what form could such a debate be prosecuted? There will be more to this. I think it's going to be such an important area. Naomi Klein is, of course, among those who has written about this. And she has written about how corporations have unethically exploited workers in some of the world's poorest countries, often those with atrocious human rights records in pursuit of profit maximization. Next week, as I go to the United Nations, I sometimes ask myself, what was the atmosphere of all those countries in Africa that had just come out of colonization and so on? And those great leaders who had great hope in their hearts. And sometimes they would say they're going to, the, to, you know, to achieve something. What will be achieved and what was achieved? We're now going in 2019. We will have the most abusive rhetoric, the most careless, indifferent neglect of those who are the most vulnerable. But then you don't get defeated by that. You realize simply that there has been a great resile in relation to the ethical content of international theory. And I think we just have to push for the recovery of that ground. Klein wrote in her book, when manufacturing is so highly devalued, it follows that the people doing the production work become highly devalued as well. The shift in corporate priorities has left factory workers and craftspeople in a precarious position. The lavish spending in the 1990s on marketing mergers and brand extensions has been matched by resistance to investing in production facilities and labour. Multinationals search the globe for factories that can make their products as cheaply as possible and by contracting out the manufacturing work can shed all responsibility for working conditions. The contracting allows multinationals to refocus on the needs of their brands as opposed to the needs of their workers. And in your own conversation from time to time, even in politics, people would say, the brand is working. There's a great attraction in the brand, etc. As a corollary, it follows that left unimpeded, such a form of globalization will deepen the gap between rich and poor, with poor getting poorer. 
I think, too, as well, globalisation has tested rights to the point of eschewing them, rights that may have been agreed, often hard won, multilaterally, to achieve an acceptance across borders then, as even the most minimally ethical globalisation. Globalisation needs to somehow be managed by accountable multilateral institutions so that it supports fundamental human rights, labour rights, and leads to long-lasting development and prosperity inclusion for citizens in general, particularly the most vulnerable and poorest. And the ILO is a crucial role to play in that and will be called upon, to, I think, to make a leading role so that workers are not made the casualties of globalisation, but rather that globalisation be made to work for the world's workers and of all of our global citizens. Now, I want to come to the final part of what I have to say. There is good news for almost after four years, after four decades of a mainstream economic commentary espousing the virtues of privatisation, deregulation and a lesser role for the state. We now appear to be on the cusp of a turning point in the political economy discourse. Thanks to the insightful contribution of economists like Ian Gaw, but also to Mariana Mazzucato, Sylvia Walby, and there's such a great contribution from feminist economics. And there is an effective rebuke of the austerity fueled worldview that gained such acceptance in the past decade and has been offered, and that has been offered in the recent literature by authors such as those I've mentioned. And alternative models are gaining precedence and recognition among <coughs> the odds parts of the commentariat and in several international and military organisations. And I believe that the neoliberal mantra in order to restore growth, all that is needed is to reduce deficits by cutting public spending, shrinking the public world, has been effectively refuted. The empirical evidence is there and it speaks for itself. And it is being accepted in ever wider policy circles that government investment in areas like education and health and research and technology is a key component of economic growth and must not be cut in times of economic adversity. And even institutions, highly left-wing institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, have slowly evolved their thinking on austerity as a strategic tool, believing that it can be self-defeating. Keynes, after all, argued over 80 years ago, if governments cut spending during a downturn, a short-lived recession can become a fully-fledged depression. This is precisely what occurred in so many countries after the Great Recession of 2008, including here. This prolongation and intensification of the economic bust resulted in a deepening of the experience of, as well as a widening of the exposure to a range of attendant social ills right across the European Union, including corrosive unemployment, particularly among the young, with double figures, avoidable consequences that were a direct result of a prolonged period of forced constraint underinvestment by the state, many of which have not yet been resolved. So I suggest with humility that productivity is an economic concept needs to be critiqued and problematised more assertively by organisations such as the ILO. Any narrowly defined concept of productivity, capturing in a simplistic way merely the efficiency of production, utilising the four factors of production, while it may be important to understand in an ever more competitive enterprise environment, it is an insufficient concept when examined from a labour productivity perspective. 
I believe this is the case because studies have shown since the late 1970s in the United States and subsequently in Europe, growth in labour productivity no longer needs to commensurate improvements in the incomes of workers, but is instead captured by the owners of capital, a capital that itself is often speculative and rather than productive, and knows no borders. This is not only inequitable, it places a value on the role of capital that is far higher than other factors of production, such as labour and entrepreneurship, and is inherently volatile given its speculative nature, capable of dislodging even the most prudent economic management. Such volatility has clear adverse downstream impacts on labour markets, in which when speculative capital does not perform in the markets, as well as was envisaged, it results potentially in the need for firms to cut back on other factors of production, with labour being the most easily adjusted in our increasingly flexible labour markets. And I want to just say briefly the concept of work itself. Andrea Comlosi, in her recent work, Work the Last 1,000 Years, suggests that the often limited definition and classification of work has never corresponded to the historical experience of most people, whether in the colonies, the developing countries, or the industrialised world. The gap between common assumptions and reality grows even more pronounced in the case of women and other groups excluded from the labour market. Are you going home to work? Are you... What about all the work that was not regarded as work? What was work? And so forth. What did it mean? I mean? People would say to me sometimes, I remember when I was a public representative, that they had some little job and so forth. I think that's a think. I suggest again, the often limited definition and classification of work has never corresponded to the historical experience of most people, whether in the colonies, developing countries, or the industrialised world. And as our distinguished guest could show, for so many, it has been slavery and bondage and debt bondage from being young until being very old. So genocides bring to mind, as I'm concluding, the related philosophical concept so much advocated by Gandhi of the dignity of labour, in which all types of jobs are respected and treated equally, that no occupation is considered superior. And in this country, we have paid a great deal of homage to that ranking, to the notion the authority accepted the authoritarianism that comes from hierarchy and difference and looking for, if you like, privileged differences in definitions of work. No job should be discriminated against on any basis. And is this not the ethic of work in the public service for the public good? And surely a return to the fundamentals of decent, secure jobs would result in a widespread increase in job satisfaction, a better sense of accomplishment, a general improvement in quality of life across nations, social cohesion, even joy. Rather sadly, a vision in which the concept that lie behind the dignity of labour became more embedded in the citizenry and in particular. Employers is perhaps many people regard this kind of remark, as I have just made, as provocative, even radical. And I think really they see it as attempting to upturn the commonly held assertion that money and wealth accumulation is the primary motivation behind humans' innate desire to work.
When I gave those early speeches, Olivia, at the Labour Party conference, I would occasionally quote R.H. Tony and said, why do people, do those frogs in the pond, put up with their miserable existence? Because they believe that sometimes some of them will sprout a jaw and leap to earth and become a frog. And that is a kind of the great illusion of the time. The task at hand is to create a society that is more equal, one that in which all work is valid, in which there can be joy and fulfilment through the exercise of effort, and all jobs are decent and fulfilling. It's not an easy one, given the current geopolitical milieu and the recent, if now thankfully fading, Western fixation with a particular form of neoliberalism. However, advancing the political economic concept of deliberative democracy, us talking about this, thank you, Jürgen Habermas, provides us with a means with which we may engage and promote such a vision, not only across the citizenries of Europe, but across the world. Habermas has written convincingly on this topic, asserting that political decisions should be the product of fair and reasonable discussion and debate among citizens. And it follows, therefore, that we as citizens must become more aware of the often obscured, consciously hidden ideological assumptions that lie behind policy choices that affect our lives. And this means that we all need to foster universal political economic literacy to deal with new and exciting challenges, including those in the labour area, and a better understanding of the nature of value and really what constitutes happiness. We must have an existence, surely, that has as its purpose something better than what the late Sigmund Bauman put it, to be consumed in our consumption. May I suggest that as part of a coordinated discourse, the ILO has a potentially crucial role in ensuring that government's labour policies are ethically grounded and in helping to bring about a vision of a new eco-social economic paradigm, the components of which I've outlined but briefly in this address that we might live in peace and harmony. That was the ILO's founding purpose. And there is, there is, if we can achieve it and work together, an alternative to insatiable concentration of surplus, destructive tendencies to monopoly. And the ILO is a crucial role in our emancipatory future. And one of the ways in which we do this is to re-establish or embed and enhance Glaucon's social contract between the citizen and the state something which has been heavily eroded in much of the West following decades of attack from prevailing laissez-faire policy. I see the ILO as having a vital role in turning around this tide by advocating a rights-based approach to quality work, engaging within the confines of the organisation's constitution in the deliberative democratic process. And I believe that the battle for decent work, for fairness, security and sustainable advancement for all is the defining battle of our times. And all of the joy of the founding energies, my wish is may they be with you now. And I hope that your centenary conference proves to be a fruitful experience and that the ILO of tomorrow will play an even greater part in defending the hard-won rights of workers across the world as we continue to face challenges and obstacles to a fair society. For your voice, the ILO's voice, is one that carries influence and respect and one that I know can give leadership on the new forms of sustainable, equitable, eco-social economy, that will realise the benefits of social cohesion and seek to reclaim a comprehension of work as the basis for the achievement of other human rights and a strong foundation for a life of dignity, fulfilment and flourishing, 
achieved and sustained through your ethically driven tripartism in the ILO. Mila Buikas, Garamila Mahati, thank you.